0: Welcome back to Hot Off The Pod. I'm your co-host, Harper Lambert.
1: And I'm Melanie Zement. We hope that you all had a wonderful spring break. We're really excited today to be sitting down with the executive director of the Santa Barbara International Film Festival, Roger Derling.
2: Thank you for having me, ladies.
1: (laughs) Thanks for coming on. We're really excited to get into it. In a
0: normal year, the festival already would have taken place in January, as it has over the last 35 years. But of course, you know, like most things, this year has looked a little bit different. And actually, this 36th annual festival began March 31st and ended last night. So how are you feeling about the festival? And did you get to celebrate it all at the end of it?
2: No, I actually, we haven't gotten to celebrate because we, um, you know, we built out those two big drive-ins at City College and we're still working on taking things down. And then we have, we have a few other events that we have to do this week on Monday and Wednesday. So it's too early for us to um, start celebrating. Almost there. We're almost there, but definitely we're taking a big sigh It was definitely, as you mentioned, it was a very different year and it required a different type of film festival. But we're definitely elated that we pulled it off and that we were able able to do the film festival this year.
0: Yeah. Big congratulations. Thank you. Just to give our listeners an idea of the scale of the festival and the challenges that I'm sure adapting it posed. This is an 11-day festival, and it typically features more than 200 films. There are celebrity tributes, there are industry panels, Mm -hmm. and usually these draw not only, you know, filmmakers, but also film lovers from all over the world as it is an international film festival and just a crazy roster of stars. So did any of that change with the pandemic this year?
2: We understood that we needed to... It was really important for us to do the film festival period. And we also thought that was important to have some sort of in-person presence. So a hybrid film festival. We were hoping earlier in the year that we will have more capacity inside movie theaters. But as you know, right now, we're only at 25% capacity indoors. And we realized that back in November, that we were not going to have the capacity inside. We had done renderings and budgeting for taking over public parks in downtown Santa Barbara, and we were going to transform them into movie theaters. Then November, as I mentioned, we started to understand that the, the capacity for indoors and also the permitting for doing events outdoors was limited so we had to pivot a third time the last minute plan in november that we understood that the, the only way we could do an in-person was going to be drivings mm-hmm. we started scrambling for places there's a driving in Goleta, but that's landlocked and it just it didn't excite me the idea of being in that area And I wanted two drive-ins, not just one. I wanted to create a sense of a festival and and venues. So fortunately, City College had those two big parking lots right now next to their stadium that are not being used. And that was on cliff drive. It was right in front of the ocean. And that felt Santa Barbara What was really unique about this year is that we had to do basically two film festivals at once. We had all the programming of the films that was happening at the driving, and then everything, including the films, the panels, the tributes that we normally do, those were done online.
0: Exhibition-wise, you had every single film screening appeared both online and then in the drive-in theater?
3: Correct, yeah. Important was to make sure that it that the festival was completely accessible to the community, given what we've all gone through this past year. The online presence, the films, the tributes, the panels, that was a paid component. For example, the writers panels, I've always strived to get the nominees for Screenplay and and there is two categories. You know, there's adapted and original. And I usually have about seven participants in the panel, and I'm missing some because they're in Europe or they're on location, et cetera, et cetera. This year we had all the ten nominees because everybody could just whatever they were uh, at, they could just dial in because it was online. And that aspect, yeah, I, I missed the in person quality of the writer's panel the directors producers etc but I also love the fact that everybody was available that and then i mean there there was no no excuse yeah' it's like everybody's just chiming in which was great that part was fantastic and we've never had something like that happen where all the panels we had all the nominees for all the categories etc but if you just want to come up to the ocean and City College did the drive-ins and drive up in your car and watch it, it, it should be just 100% free. And it was. And they, they were extremely well attended. You could reserve your spot in advance. And um, we had a great turnout at the drive-in. Most of the film shows were were at capacity.
1: Yeah. Harper and I, we talk a lot about how we love how the drive-ins have made such a resurgence in the past year do you think that that's something that's going to stick around or or like you said, are you really excited to just kind of get back into the movie theaters next year?
3: I'm, you know, personally speaking, I'm not a big driving person. I like my sanctuary like <laughs> experience of being inside a movie theater and great sound and darkness, et cetera. I like the purity of being immersed in the movie going experience where when I go to the driving, it's more like, you know, people are tailgating and. I'm not a big fan of driving, but I do. Mm. Uh, would, would it continue? I think so. I mean, I think that there are a lot of families are discovering and in that respect, I think it's a really cool thing that, you know, you pay one price for one car and you can put in all your kids and, and, you know, and food, you know, concessions is you just bring in your own. And, 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 and that part is great for families. And I think that, yes, it's being rediscovered. There's a resurgence, and I think that they, it will continue.
0: I know it's a compromise, but I think considering that so many festivals had to be outright canceled, like South by Southwest, Telluride, um, you know, the likes of those, and it's. I imagine really disappointing for people who've been working on their films for years and they just want a real in-person experience of debuting them. So I imagine this was really cool then for people who submitted their films. And I was wondering if the pandemic at all impacted the range of submissions. It seems like it didn't because I checked out the program. It was like there were tons of films from all over. But did you see any patterns? No,
3: actually, it was the opposite, I think. Filmmakers were anxious to have their films showcased, and I think that people were submitted their films at a higher percentage than we've had in the past because other film festivals had canceled and because their films had been done for over a year and they had not had a place to be showcased, and we provided that. So that aspect was really great.
1: Something that really sets the Santa Barbara Film Festival apart is a strong emphasis on not just the stars of the films, but also all the people who work behind the scenes to bring the films together. Is that something you emphasize when you put together the film festival?
3: Yeah, we have always done that. but Seven years ago, we made a more determined pact to start showcasing people that are behind the scenes, like composers, cinematographers costume designers, production design, special effects, et cetera. And seven years ago, we, you know, we have the evenings for the actors and and the big nominees and directing. and, And I mentioned writers, producers, but we have had this one evening. It's called the Artisans Awards. And it's putting a spotlight on those behind the scene craft Artists that have been working in cinema we've been doing that for so many years and it quickly has become one of the most popular events we do and actually it happens to be my favorite because of what you just mentioned the fact that when you go to film festival you normally see you not know, the Jennifer Lawrence tribute or the big salute to Julia Roberts, but you don't ever hear about the costume designers you don't hear about the editors. We've always been saluting sound people for the past seven years. And, that, you know, this year's sound of metal, the sound design is so important. And we had the sound mixer and the sound designer be part of the evening as well. So that was to me, you know, I teach at Santa Barbara City College. I teach film studies. And I've always seen the film festival as an educational tool for everybody. So having an evening like the Artisans Award, where below the line people are featured. It's very educational. You find out things about filmmaking that you normally don't hear about, and that thrills me, that excites me.
0: Yeah, I'm guessing that the proximity to the Academy Awards, it usually takes place a few days before, and then also because Santa Barbara is so close to LA, which is where all the ceremonies are happening. I I imagine that really helps. Also, it's beautiful here, so I'm sure people want to come out. I'm guessing that's part of the plan, right? That's part of the design of the festival.
3: Well, yeah. When I took over the film festival, which was 18 years ago, I adjusted the date to capitalize on the Academy Award nominations and the proximity to Hollywood and the fact that everybody's in campaign mode after the nominations are around. And you know that the Academy has this rule in which once you're nominated, they restrict campaigning in the sense that you can do Q&As and you can be celebrated, but it has to be done by guilds or it has to be done by film festivals. And that's where Santa Barbara 17 years ago fell into place really nicely where we took advantage of the Academy Awards and the fact that you had all this talent out there that was nominated and they wanted to campaign. And by coming to Santa Barbara, they're able to fulfill that. Every year it becomes easier to book the talent because they really wanna be part of why we do. Also because of the Academy members that are here in Santa Barbara, we do year round screenings at the Riviera Theater, which we run and we do Academy screenings. Normally on an average year we do about thirty Academy screenings with talent present. This year because of Zoom, we did sixty five Academy screenings and they were all attended by all the major talent. Wow. Yeah, that was actually pretty cool. And again, people were chiming in from all parts of the world just to do the Q&A.
1: Yeah,
0: I am from Los Angeles and I go to UCSB. And when I got here, this was the first time I really was aware that there was such a thriving film going community in Santa Barbara. And, you know, people who love film might not know that, but this festival really brings film lovers into such close contact with the people who make all the movies they love. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit to the role of Santa Barbara International Film Festival in this community. How do you feel it plays a role in really getting people invested and like engaged in talking about film and going to film here? It really is unlike anywhere else I've seen.
3: Well, it definitely has grown. We do have a movie theater, the Riviera Theater, which is, I think, is the premier art house in this town. We have those year-round screenings that I mentioned called Cinema Society. And the discussion of film is always happening there. And it's year-round. We have all these different educational programs. It has been happening steadily for 17 years. And I think Yes, we have created a following in this town, and we've elevated the conversation of cinema as well in this town. It wasn't rocket science when you think about it. One of you mentioned the proximity to Hollywood. If you look at all the film festivals that are top-notch across the world, they're usually destination places like Santa Barbara when you think about Venice and you think about Berlin, when you think about Telluride. When you think about Cannes, it's always a destination place, a place that you want to be at. And then that has the infrastructure, that has the movie theaters that could be implemented for a film festival. And you also need the hotels and the restaurants. Santa Barbara was just, it was meant to be. I mean, you have a downtown corridor where you can easily walk to all the different venues to watch films. It has the infrastructure where you have all the hotels, and then it has this destination place that everybody wants to come to Santa Barbara. So it has all the check marks in my book, what makes for a great film festival location.
0: I just wanted to refer back to what you were talking about with all the educational programs. So in May of 2019, there was an education center that the festival opened downtown, and in addition to that, there's just a myriad of different educational programs. There was the 101010 screenwriting mentorship program and competition. There's a film camp that. Works in partnership with the Boys and Girls Club. There's the Rosebud program, um, which, you know, for college credit provides insider access to the industry. And I know we've had people at the Nexus participate in it before. And a newer one that was during the pandemic was the Student Showcase in Place. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
3: Absolutely. When I took over, you know, I mentioned I teach at City College Education. It's always been the most rewarding thing I do. And it's important that an arts organization, especially a non-profit one, dedicates itself to education. Every age group, there is a program dedicated to it. We have this program called field trip to the movies, where third graders to sixth grade are basically introduced to cinema. We make films accessible to them. We buzz them in for free during the film festival to watch movies. And then they listen to Q&A with filmmakers about how the film was made, we prioritize Title I schools, so low-income families and those kids. They usually watch a Pixar film or a Disney film, an animated film, and then we give them a little taste of how the film is made. This year, of course, because of the pandemic, we couldn't buzz the kids in. So what we did is that we created all this lesson plans that we built via Zoom, and we spoke to... Actors and and they explain how they do the voices for animated films. We met with the artists that do the animation themselves, with the directors, etc. And so we created twelve lesson plans for the third to sixth graders, and we provided them directly to the teachers. And then we also provided links to films. So instead of them coming to us for the program, we actually provided the program to them. You mentioned the 10-10-10 mentorship filmmaking competition. That one is where we basically select 10 high school students and 10 college students in script writing and filmmaking. And we pair them with a well-known writer and a well-known filmmaker. And they're basically for four months, they're mentored on how to write a script, and how to make a film, and it culminates into the students actually making a 10-minute film. That's why it's called 10-10-10. And this year, yes, we had to pivot and do it online instead of doing it in person. We also have a program that I'm very proud of that is called the Film Studies Program, where we fly in 30 students from across the country, and we put them up, and they experience the film festival. They actually have a class during the film festival. We have a professor attached to them, and we prioritize students from cities across the country or towns across the country that don't have access to a big city and movie theaters, or that their school don't have a film studies program. We've done that in person for the past seven years, but then this year we had to do it online. We have a myriad of educational programs, and we also have a program for our older students. We have a senior citizen program where we engage and provide study guides and educational aspects of filmmaking.
1: So it seems like with all these educational programs, the aim is to kind of include as many different populations as possible in the filmmaking process. In a 2006 New York Times article, you're quoted as saying film festivals have a tradition of being for the elite, but they shouldn't be. It should be like a candy store. Anyone should be able to walk in and grab what they want. Is that kind of the approach with these educational programs?
3: I like that quote. I still live by that quote. I think that everybody should have access to the arts. I think it's very important. I think that it's not just enough for a film festival to provide access to films and to introduce people to the film. I think that you should be able to also expand people's knowledge of film. One of you mentioned earlier about expanding the cultural lifestyle around film here in Santa Barbara. I think the education programs that we've been doing has helped that conversation. It is essential. I think that it's just not enough just to show a film and just show and expose people to the film. I think you need to teach people how to analyze the film, how it was made, how you can make it yourself if you want to, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Just to pivot a little bit to, you know, your own involvement with film and the festival itself. So I did some research. You're from New Jersey. You got a graduate degree from Columbia. And I also read that you really got interested in the festival aspect when you started attending different festivals. You went to Telluride. And I was wondering, what do you think was your entry point into film? And what was your entry point into the festival world itself?
3: Well, my schooling was not done in film in any way whatsoever. I actually studied theater, but since I was a little kid and I was born in Panama, Central America, um, and I came to New Jersey for high school, English is my second language. I learned how to speak English when I came to the United States when I was 12, but since I was a little kid, I was just obsessed with cinema i passionately loved it but i didn't know that there was a career in film i wasn't exposed to it and then when i went to college i knew that i didn't want to go and make movies i knew that i didn't want to go into acting i didn't want to make movies but i didn't know that there was such a thing as the career that i have right now Going to film festivals has always been the most fulfilling thing to me. I just love it. I've been going to the Telluride Film Festival now for 34 years, and I found my niche. But I never knew that I could leap into that career. Long story short, I came to Santa Barbara, and I was actually running a cafe in Summerlin called a French Bulldog Cafe, and Throughout my career, any money that I had extra, I would use towards attending a film festival, whether it was Sundance or Telluride or the New York Film Festival. People were asking me, what about the Santa Barbara Film Festival? I told them it was mediocre and I was being polite. And I told them that these are the things that this film festival could do that are really easy in order to become a better film festival. And One thing led to the other and I was introduced to the board of directors and unbeknownst to me, they were transitioning. They were in financial turmoil and they were firing the executive director that was currently running it. I told them, I said, take a chance on me. I've never run a film festival, but I do know how to turn it around. And I told them that I would do it for a year for free. And if in a year I managed to turn it around, They would pay me retroactively. So basically, they had nothing to lose but take a chance. on this person who had never run a film festival, but I knew what made a good film festival. And I knew that I could do it. So that's how I ended up being the head of the film festival.
0: Yeah, I read that you brought in the genres by including sports nature films and reserving a third of the slots for Latino filmmakers. So clearly you had a different approach when you started in 2002.
3: The film festival needed to be a reflection of this town. And if you look at, even to this day, the the sections and the interests that are showcased in the festival, they're basically a reflection of the different interests, and the different communities here that make Santa Barbara. We always have a surfing component because in this town, people are into surfing and then outdoor sports. There's a big social consciousness filmmaking component in the festival because in Santa Barbara, there's a lot of socially conscious individuals. You know, 45% of our population here is Latino. So that needs to be reflected in programming. I understood that if I created a very specific tailored Santa Barbara interest program, the specificity would become universal eventually.
0: Absolutely. Just in your own experience, since you started working in film festivals, what's changed the most in the festival landscape?
3: I think that the influx of streaming has changed the landscape. Before, there was a certain type of of film that you saw at film festivals. The emphasis has shifted, at least Santa Barbara. We have shifted more towards international films because they are the ones that will have the least access to streaming to the Netflix and the Amazons of the world. What has shifted is definitely a more concentrated effort to create a type of programming that is counter to what is accessible at home.
1: So just to kind of wrap things up, what can we look forward to for next year? Are you guys looking to move back to that January timing?
3: Yes, the film festival always Mm -hmm. happens after the nomination. So uh, we're waiting to hear what the Academy decides for 2022, the dates. And they won't make that call until mid-May. I'm hoping that it's back in January.
1: Yeah, and hopefully back in person by the time January comes around.
3: There's one guarantee I can make is that we will have a film festival next year. What's empowering about what just happened, it, it proved to ourselves that we're able to pivot and we're able to think outside the box and figure out a way to do a film festival in a different way, given the circumstances. And that definitely was exhilarating for us.
1: Yeah, well, I certainly think if we can take one thing out of this year, it's that we're much more adaptable than I think any of us knew.
3: Absolutely.
1: Speaking
0: of adaptability, I've noticed, Roger, that you yourself have started some of your own projects within the film festival this year. And my favorite one has been the daily film recommendations that you can get through email newsletter. And basically, you know, you've been breaking down some of your favorites and giving a little behind-the-scenes information and also providing reviews that I've found to be really, really interesting and informative. And then you're also making a book out of these. It's called Cinema in Flux. I was wondering if you could share a bit about that project.
3: It was never meant to be a project. I knew that people were going to be home and they were going to be freaking out about what to do. And, and I wanted to be of aid and help And so at first, they were very short write-ups about what to see. I thought it was just going to be for a couple of weeks, because when you remember the lockdown, only two weeks uh, at first. And then weeks passed, and I was still writing them, and people were welcoming them. I didn't think people would read them that there was an audience for it, but uh, little did I know that there was. And then they started getting bigger and longer and not just a quick watch this, it became a dissertation, as you said, about a particular film. And little did I know, all of a sudden, it's like a year later. What was really cool about it was that I was basically processing through film what was transpiring, for example, When the George Floyd assassination happened and the Black Lives Matter movement started happening as a white Latino, I needed to understand what was happening. And my way to understand it was to watch movies. So through that whole period of the protest, I did a deep dive into films by African-Americans, and those were featured during those weeks. Then there was Chadwick Boseman's death. And so I dove into Chadwick's filmography. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And then I watched a documentary about her life and wrote about it. So my daily recommendations became just a reflection about what was happening. And then a whole year went by and the film festival said, why don't we just put them in the book and the sales to it will benefit the Film Festival. That's basically the genesis of the book.
0: Yeah, when will it be available?
3: It's gonna be in September, September 1st. It is a coffee table book with beautiful photographs. And that part of it, the artistic aspect of putting it together has been really fulfilling for me. Not only did I wrote all those entries, but doing the production design for the book has been an enterprise in itself
1: that I've really enjoyed. We're looking forward to reading it when it comes out. For my
0: own selfish enjoyment, I hope you keep it going with the recommendations. They've been such an enjoyable part of the pandemic for me. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And then congratulations on the festival. You deserve a big vacation after this, I'm sure. Thank you. Here are some other hot headlines from the Daily Nexus.
1: Over spring break, UCSB's men's basketball team excitingly won the Big West tournament and made it to the NCAA basketball tournament.
0: Isla Vista's annual block party bonanza, otherwise known as Deltopia, took place the first weekend of spring quarter as usual. Despite heightened concerns due to COVID, there were still few arrests and citations and plenty of gatherings. Check out the Nexus's photo coverage on dailynexus.com.
1: Opinion and staff writer Sydney Hoft reflects on the recent attacks against Asian-Americans that took place in Atlanta and the problematic tendency to resort to performative activism on social media. Read the rest at dailynexus.com.
0: Special thanks to our guest Roger Derling, and to the rest of the Hot Off the Pod team, Emily Kosas, Josh and Manti, and Tony Schindler-Ruberg. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.